Welcome again. We're continuing uh, in 1 Samuel. This is toward the beginning of the Bible. If you are new to the Bible, the big numbers are what we call chapters. The little numbers are called verses. We are in the middle of a story about Israel's first king named Saul. So we're going to start at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. We'll read through chapter 11, verse 13. Samuel is a prophet. He's somebody who uh, speaks God's word to God's people. 1 Samuel 10, 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel." The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, 
Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for help to understand. Father, thank you for the precious gift of your word, sweeter than honey, uh, more valuable than all the money in the world. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to see and savor Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. 200 years ago or so, uh, there was a Presbyterian minister named Charles Finney who became quite famous for his large and exciting revival meetings in the state of New York. Uh, He was part of what we now call the Second Great Awakening. Unlike earlier American theologians like Jonathan Edwards, who was part of what we call the First Great Awakening, uh, they argued that a revival was something miraculous that God brought about in his own way and in his own timing. But unlike them, Charles Finney argued that a religious revival was not miraculous and that it was something that a church or a minister could engineer through methods and practices that have had an enormous influence on American Christianity ever since. He argued, see if any of this sounds familiar, he argued that a revival could be guaranteed through the use of good marketing, through flamboyant preaching and special intense music, through long, emotionally racking services that would maximize psychological pressure on people to make a decision for God. Uh, He was the one who invented this idea of walking down the aisle to a certain place where you could think about what you were going to do and make a decision there. Uh, And he was also behind this idea that people had a certain prayer that they had to say if they were going to become a Christian. Uh, These kinds of things have continued all the way down to the present day across all kinds of denominations. Uh, They have shown up uh, in large part through things like the megachurch movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, the prosperity gospel movement, all of that now amplified, globalized, maybe weaponized, depending on your views in the age of the internet. Baked deep into the cake of American Christianity is the idea that we can use the world's methods to bring about God's kingdom. We can use the world's methods to bring about God's kingdom. Uh, that if we follow the right recipe, people will become Christians, churches will grow, uh, or at least we will cannibalize all the lame churches and suck people away from them. But our passage this morning is all about God's commitment to the victory of his own kingdom and his insistence that it happen in his own way, not in the world's way. 
You've been seeing uh, in the story of, Sa- of Samuel, and now we're shifting to a focus on Saul, we've been seeing that Israel wanted the world's way of success and security. They wanted human kingship. They said, we no longer want God to be our king. We no longer want God to fight our battles. Instead, we want a human king to go out and bring us success. Last week, we saw in this story about the donkeys and then about Saul being anointed privately with Samuel, we saw that their first ruler, Saul, is pretty ambiguous morally and spiritually. It's not really quite clear what's going on with him. Even if on the outside, he's very impressive. He looks great. He looks exactly like what you would think a king would look like. Today, we are shifting from the private realm to the public realm. We are going to see Israel's response to Saul. Initially, they're very excited about him, uh, but quickly they become pretty disillusioned with him, uh, even despondent over him. And But at the same time, what we're seeing here is how God really is committed to securing and advancing his kingdom by his own power, even through and in the face of Israel's and Saul's failures. God remains committed to spreading his kingdom. In the first half of chapter 10, Saul was anointed privately, but now in verse 17, we move on to the public acclamation. But it begins in an odd, even an ominous way. In verse 17 there of chapter 10, you hear that Samuel has called the people together at this place called Mizpah. You might remember back in chapter 7, uh, Mizpah was the place where Israel had repented uh, with Samuel about their indifference toward God. Uh, where, this is where they asked Samuel to intercede with God on their behalf, to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And they said they were very sorry for what they had done. And it was a great day in Israel's life. Because there, without any help from Israel, as Samuel was offering prayers and sacrifices for them, without any help from Israel, God defeated the Philistines for them. And so now, a couple decades later, Samuel is a very old man. He brings them back to this place where at one time things had gone so well for them with God. And he reminds them that in asking for a human king, they have rejected God as their king. I suppose it would be something like if you were in the middle of a huge fight with your wife and then you intentionally, to make a really strong point, continued your fight right at the spot where you proposed to her. In verse 18, God emphatically says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you not only from the misery of Egyptian bondage, but I also saved you from all kinds of oppressive kingdoms, including, not very long ago, on this very spot, from the oppression of the Philistines. God says, again, I'm reminding you, I've always shown you abundant mercy. I've always shown you abundant care and protection. But now, verse 19, by insisting on a king like all the nations around you, God says, you have rejected me as your God. You've rejected my powerful grace. You've ungratefully despised everything I've done for you. Uh, This God who's always provided for you. And so Samuel says to them, assemble yourselves. We have to have a serious talk. When one of God's prophets comes along and tells you how ungrateful and selfish you've been and that now God wants to tell you something, it's generally 
a good sign that you are in serious trouble. There's some kind of smackdown coming usually when these things are coming together. The sense of impending doom is underscored in verse 20 when everyone gets together and Saul pulls out his uh, Yahtzee dice and starts rolling them. He starts taking lots. This is a way of consulting God's will, consulting God's input, because they recognize that God controls all things, even things that appear to be random to us. And so Samuel starts rolling the dice to select from the bigger groups down to the smaller groups, down to one person. Tribe, down to clan, down to family, down to Saul. Something like this has already happened in Israel's history. Uh, In Joshua chapter 7, a couple hundred years before this, uh, God used the repeated casting of lots to reveal an individual who had flagrantly disobeyed God and then lied about it, tried to hide it, and therefore deserved to be executed for it, which he was. So given the context of Samuel's white-hot indictment of Israel here, God's always been generous to you, but you're rejecting him, and now here's come the dice. Let's see. Let's find a person. Uh, you can imagine how nerve-wracking this would have been. The dice rolling narrows it down to Saul, but now the ominous proceeding takes a ridiculous detour. Verse 21, Saul was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. Whether it's from incompetence or ignorance or fear, Saul is nowhere to be seen. Using the same language that we heard about last week, he has become just like one of the donkeys that he was so fervently chasing around. Looking, 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 can't find him. Verse 22, the people have to go to God and they have to say to him, please help us to find whoever you're trying to show us. We're not sure where he is. And God tells them that the tallest man in Israel has hidden himself among the luggage. It's a farcical echo of the way that Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the garden using some of the same language. Saul looks pretty ridiculous but so does Israel. They cannot even find their own king. The one that they want so bad, so that they still depend on God to tell them where he even is. Sometimes we can be so confident in our own abilities and our own desires and our own intentions, it is so easy to forget how profoundly dependent we still are on God. Once again, even though they have rejected God as their king, we're being reminded that God is still king. God is keeping track of everybody. They can't even find him themselves. They need God to do it for them. So God tells them where he is. He's hiding in the luggage. And so they have to run. uh, And it's not just that they say, Hey, Saul, come here. We have something for you. It says that they have to take him with them. They have to take him down to the meeting. Again, underscoring how passive he is. And the narrator takes this chance to remind us about how impressive he looks. Verse 23, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. Israel has been fixated on the superficial. They have been fixated on what Saul looks like, how impressive he looks. And how Saul can fix their surface level Political problems. Go out 
and fix our battles. Samuel underscores this, apparently with a great deal of irony and sarcasm. He says, here he is, do you see him? I just dragged him out of the luggage. There's nobody like him. Here's your spectacular leader you've wanted so badly. But in all of the excitement, Israel misses the joke. And so all of them shout out, long live the king. This is the first time Saul is called a king. Neither God nor Samuel has yet ever actually called him a king. The most that they've ever said about him is that he's a leader. The people think happy days are here again. A bit of a hiccup there with the luggage, but we found him. Our cares and troubles now are gone. No more problems. We are tired of the ways of God's kingdom. We're tired of doing things his way. They seem so silly and weak and ridiculous to us. Now we can finally do things the way the world does. Now things will go great for us. The people have spoken. But Samuel knows what these people are like after many decades of working with them. He knows what they actually want from their king. And so now he takes them back to basics. At this point we hear in verse 25 that he needs to remind them of how God wants Israel's king to rule. That the king must rule under, not instead of, God. Verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship and he wrote them down in a book and laid it up before the Lord. A couple weeks ago we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel warning the people about the oppressive clown show, quote unquote, justice of the king who was going to rule over them. But, and now using the exact same phrase, uh, here it's translated as the rules of the kingship. It's really the same phrase. It says the justice of the kingdom. Uh, now he reminds them of a different kind of justice. God's kind of justice. And he writes it down for them and he puts it somewhere. The king and the people can't forget it. Can't ignore it. This is probably a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17 towards the end of the Mosaic law uh, where Moses is recognizing that a day is going to come when Israel is going to want to have a king. And he says, yes, God will grant you this sinful request, uh, but... I'm going to regulate the way that this king is going to function. He must, must, must rule in God's way, not in his own way. Moses says there in Deuteronomy 17, the king must steer clear of using his role to build an army or to negotiate complex foreign alliances or to seek personal pleasure and wealth. Moses also says that the king must be constantly reading and studying and obeying God's law, lest he forget that he is merely a deputy under God rather than a replacement for God. So Samuel reminds Saul and the people of how strictly limited his role and his authority will be. He says, you must not be like the kings of the surrounding nations. And therefore, now back in Samuel's day. Therefore, he must not do all the things that you, Israel, want him to do. They want a king like all the nations, and God has already said, that's not allowed. He cannot act like them. He's going to do it in a very different way. The king and the people are subject to God's word. 
That's one of the big points here. The king and the people are subject to God's word. This is embodied for us. This is pictured for us in verses 25 and 26, where after Samuel reminds them what God has said about what kings are supposed to be doing and what they're not supposed to be doing, it says that Samuel, not Saul, not the king, it says Samuel, the prophet, ends the meeting. He says, meeting's over, everybody go home. And then just in case we've missed the point, the narrator tells us that even Saul had to obey him and go back to his own house. Run along, king. Meeting's done. Saul is subject to God's word. We hear here that there are some men of valor who they have heard about God's instructions for kings. They accept Saul. They're glad with God's way of doing things. But you also hear in verse 27 about some worthless fellows, uh, some guys who cynically ask, how can this man save us? Uh, They had just been rejoicing with everybody else that Saul was the king who was going to be impressive like all the nations. But when Samuel reminds them that God's law says that the king will be sharply limited in what he can do, these men despise him. They cannot imagine how a king facing such limits would be able to save them. Because they, like all of Israel, have been this whole time seeking to escape the limits of God's rule like many people today. These men actually, they're not really despising Saul. They were just rejoicing. All the people said, long live the king. These men are actually despising and rejecting God. They're rejecting his word. They're rejecting the limits that he places upon us. They're rejecting God's ways of securing and spreading his kingdom. So Saul's been publicly recognized as God's anointed, but now in chapter 11, we see him publicly victorious as God's anointed. Uh, We're in chapter 11 now, verses 1 to 5. You hear about a shameful threat from the king of a neighboring group called the Ammonites. They are to the east. The Philistines are mainly to the west. King Nahash besieges a town called Jabesh-Gilead, which is in the general vicinity of Saul's hometown. And the people there try to save themselves by offering to make a treaty uh, with this ruler. They're saying, we'll let you be our king. God had already told them through Moses, don't ever do that. Don't ever make any treaties with any other nations around you. Totally forbidden. And it's ironic, given now that they have a king in Saul. They are quick to say, well, how about you be our king? Uh, Just go easy on us, please. Nahash agrees to take them as his subjects but he wants to gruesomely show them their subjection by gouging out everybody's right eyes. It's an act of humiliation. It's an act of showing that you're my servants, you're my slaves, like Samuel had warned about in chapter 8, the way that the kings of the world treat people. But they ask for seven days to see if anybody can save them, which Nahash grants to them, maybe to underscore how pathetic they are. Like, sure, yeah, right, okay, try to find somebody. It's striking that they don't respond by saying, hey, uh, Nahash, we now have this great and impressive king. His whole job is to save us from people like you. He is going to come and give you a whooping. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks to say that. Uh, No one thinks to ask Saul. In verse 4, the messengers get to Saul's hometown, and not even there in Saul's own town does anybody think to ask Saul for help. The people hear about it, and they're weeping, and they're weeping. And then Saul's kind of lollygagging in from his farm work, and he says, hey, what's going on around here? And they say, oh yeah, here's what's happening. 
Um, Saul, it looks like uh, initially we had just a handful of worthless fellows who were scoffing that God could save them with a king limited like Saul. Uh, but now it looks like by the time that Nahash has come around, it looks like just about everybody is in the same camp. No one really believes that God can save them with a king limited like Saul. No one really believes that God's ways will actually work. And so they are just left to their own devices. But in verse 6, you see that God is still committed to the victory of his kingdom in his own way. When Saul hears what's happened, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Just like the Spirit had done for the judge Samson a few times in the book of Judges to empower him to go out and defeat the Philistines. Under the influence now of God's Spirit, Saul goes from a passive flop hiding among the baggage now to an enraged warrior ready for business. Saul now shares God's anger over the humiliating and arrogant oppression of God's precious people. To show that he means business, Saul chops up a couple of oxen and he sends bloody chunks of them all around Israel, demanding that everybody come out to him and to Samuel. Did you notice that? He says, come out to me and Samuel. Under the power of the Spirit, Saul is acknowledging God's word. Saul is showing that he is subject to God's word. And under the power of God, we hear that the people who had just so recently been dismissing Paul as incapable of saving them, who had just so recently been ignoring him, not even thinking to ask him for help, we now hear that they come out in the fear of God. They are ready to do what God wants. By the power of his spirit, God brings about a great victory for God's people. Saul routes the Ammonites, he rescues the town, he saves them. And of course here, we have a vivid picture of Jesus' own role as God's final and climactic king. Jesus' name in Hebrew means the Lord saves. Not only because Jesus saves us from our sin, which he does, but also because he saves us from the power of enemies who are much greater than the Ammonites. Demonic beings who are far more powerful, far more destructive than any politician, than any virus, than any military. Jesus saves us from them too. He begins his public ministry in the New Testament by dramatically saving people from the oppression of demons. Some of his first miracles are exorcisms, and that's significant. Most people today hardly believe in the spiritual realm, including, on a functional level, most Christians. Effectively, none of us really actually believe in demons and angels, even though we might say we do. But one thing that we need to see and know today is that God's kingdom is powerful over these forces of spiritual darkness. They are very real. They are very powerful. But Jesus has defeated them. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, our battle is not about elections that happen every couple years. Our battle is not about classmates who irritate us. Our battle is not really about uh, spouses who harm us. Paul says our real battle is against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You cannot see your worst enemies. We already heard about this in Colossians chapter 2, that on the cross, Jesus triumphed over our sin as well as the demonic beings who use the guilt and the shame of our sin 
against us. It says that Jesus exposed them to shame when he died on the cross. So you see here that God really does bring about a great victory for his kingdom and in his own way through the power of the Spirit. Those who had doubted that a human king living under God's word could actually save them are now shown here to be utterly wrong. Just as they were when Jesus himself rose from the dead a couple days after he died on the cross. Everyone there shaking their heads as they walked by the cross, writing him off as a ridiculous loser, as a charlatan who deserved what he got. The resurrection revealed the power of God's spirit, that God is committed to doing his work in his way. But we see here not only a great victory by the power of the Spirit, you also see there quickly in verses 12 and 13 a great mercy by the Spirit. In verse 12, the people change their tune about Saul now that they've seen that he can really actually do something for them. And so they say, who was it who was saying a while ago, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them here so that we might put them to death. This is all a bit rich, of course, because it looks like nobody really thought much of Saul. Nobody really believed after a little while that he could actually save them. But now, uh, it's very human, isn't it? Now they're talking like they've been into him all along, and it's just a few you know, rebels that were saying this. And so they want to blame shift away from themselves and onto these original doubters. And yet, in one of the high points of Saul's often tragic life, here he extends mercy under the power of God's Spirit. He says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul knows that the Lord, and not he, has worked salvation. That he is the one behind this great victory over what's been a hopeless situation of misery and oppression. We're going to see Saul quickly forgetting this, but for now, he gets it. Saul sees that God's mercy toward Israel means that he too should extend this mercy. He sees that God's own mercy toward the sinful Israelites in their rejection of God uh, gives him the motivation and the power to also show mercy to them. It's the same for us. This is why Jesus is so often talking about forgiving other people no matter what they've done to us because of how much God has forgiven us. Saul does not only reflect Jesus and his victorious power over sin and demons and death, but he also reflects Jesus in this instance of magnanimous mercy toward those who don't deserve it. God took the record of our sins. We heard in Colossians chapter 2, God took the record of our sins and nailed it to the cross with Jesus. God did not just wink at our sin. He did not just brush it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. He did not just shrug it away. He put them on the cross, which means that Jesus suffered instead of us. It means that Jesus died instead of us. It means that Jesus faced God's wrath instead of us. God took the record of our sins and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus and in Jesus for anybody who's humble enough to admit that they cannot be their own saviors. For anybody who is humble enough to admit that making my own treaties with my own oppressors will get me nowhere. By mercifully dealing with our greatest enemy, forgiving our sin, 
Jesus was also able to deal with our other enemies. Death, a lot of people afraid of death the last year and a half. But also spiritual evil, spiritual beings, demons, very real, far more powerful than most of what people have been afraid of for the last couple of years. This is God's way of doing God's work. Spirit wrought victory over sin and spirit wrought mercy toward the sinful. Shouldn't that shape our priorities as a church? Shouldn't that shape our priorities as Christians as we go about our daily lives? Shouldn't that give us the gratitude and the joy and the strength that come from seeing that God's mighty spirit has given us an undeserved pardon and a victory over the devil, over the sin, even over our deaths? Shouldn't this teach us to go to our deathbeds with joy and peace? Let's pray. Father, help us in this deathly fallen world under the power of the evil one. Help us to see the victory of Jesus his victory over sin, his victory over Satan, his victory over death. How quickly and how easily we want to be our own saviors, how easily we write off your way of doing things, even if we say with our mouths that we believe it all. Help us to depend on you. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to look to your final victory over all suffering and all sadness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.